I think, like many people, sleep is that kind of like dead space, that corridor I have to go through to get from the room I'm in to the room I want to be in, right? And gosh, if it weren't for those eight hours of sleep, I could probably spend more time with my friends, do more, study, achieve more, whatever it is I want. Welcome to the Our Nature podcast with me, Alyssa Benjamin. Our Nature explores the methods, systems, and practices that bring us into greater alignment with the natural world. The opportunity to live a more joyful and harmonious existence is available to each of us right in this very moment. So join me and let's rediscover what comes naturally. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Our Nature podcast. My name is Alyssa Benjamin, and I'm your host. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome to Our Nature. I'm so happy that you've taken the time to join us. If you're already a part of the Our Nature family, welcome back. I started this podcast because as humans, we have an opportunity and a biological need to connect with our environment. But so many of us have distanced ourselves from nature favoring the comforts that technology and modern culture bring us. What I began to notice was that the further we are from the natural world, the further we are from ourselves and the less happy, less healthy, and less fulfilled we are in general. Our nature exists to bring us back to our most natural ways of being. Each week, I'll interview fascinating experts from a variety of fields, From Ayurveda to Qigong, from natural dyeing to foraging, all in an attempt to help each of us connect with the natural world that exists around us. Let's learn and thrive together. I'm so happy you're here. I wanted to talk about something personal today. In the trailer for this podcast, I mentioned that I've dealt with ongoing health issues since I moved to New York City, with my most persistent and chronic issue being that of acid reflux. I'm currently in the midst of one of the worst periods of acid reflux I've ever had. It started back in January of this year, and almost every night since then, I've woken up at least once because my body gets overheated by the reflux. This in turn dramatically affects my quality of sleep and has created a whole other set of health problems, such as chronic fatigue, brain fog, irregular cycles, poor circulation, and a suppressed immune system. While these side effects are inconvenient short-term, what was really scary for me was how chronic reflux can lead to esophagitis, something called Barrett's esophagus, which is not good, and in some cases, even esophageal cancer. Rather than going to a Western medical doctor who would just prescribe me proton pump inhibitors, which have some powerful negative long-term side effects of their own, or some other acid-suppressing medication, I tried a more holistic approach. I went to my primary care physician, who happens to be a Chinese medicine doctor. I saw an Ayurvedic practitioner. I went to an acupuncturist. I saw a second Ayurvedic practitioner. I've taken so many different combinations of herbal supplements, worked to shift my routine, and even learned Vedic meditation, but none of these significantly helped my symptoms. In the midst of this chronic reflux, I felt anger towards my body, distrust, and fear of what the reflux could mean for me long-term. I've experienced lots of self-blame and shame. I've cried more times than I can remember. 
and felt utterly and completely helpless. About a week ago, I went to visit my boyfriend in rural Maine, and we ate easy-to-digest local organic produce, we rose when the sun came up, we immersed ourselves in nature, and had many moments of quiet presence. And my reflux was the worst it had been in months. This was terribly confusing for me. I felt like I was doing everything right, and yet nothing was working. I couldn't help thinking that if all of this wasn't helping, perhaps nothing would. But it was on the six-hour bus back to New York City that something shifted. Culturally, we are taught that physiological issues have physiological causes. I was starting to accumulate evidence that my reflux was caused by something deeper, perhaps something emotional. I had been resistant to this idea because in accepting that there could be emotional causes to my disease was to acknowledge my responsibility in the creation of these symptoms and ultimately my responsibility in helping to relieve these symptoms, to be my own healer. Yet on that bus ride, I started to have a growing awareness of the internal beliefs and patterns that were keeping me and my body stuck. I had a felt understanding that I had the responsibility and the capacity to connect to the emotions that were waiting to be attended to, and in so doing, have a true sense of what my body needed in order to heal. What's so fascinating was that just believing that I had the capacity to heal my physiological symptoms went a long way towards reducing them. For three days after, my reflux completely disappeared. It was incredible, and it felt like magic. Because the reflux had been chronic for so long, I had internalized the belief that I needed an expert or someone other than me to be able to heal. This belief went hand in hand with not trusting myself. But when I finally accepted that perhaps I had the ability to help myself, my body responded. Chronic disease has always been a core fear of mine, so it speaks to the intelligence of the body that it created the symptoms of a disease I couldn't ignore one that would cause me chronic discomfort, wake me up from sleep, and dominate my mind space every time I would sit down to eat a meal. My reflux created a situation that called attention to unprocessed emotions, past traumas, and inauthentic beliefs about myself that needed to be released. And because unprocessed emotions are the kinds of things that are so scary and difficult to attend to, my body created symptoms I couldn't ignore. The symptoms were like a compass guiding me towards what I needed to grow. For me, growth looked like first accepting the reality that I was sleeping poorly and having reflux, then bringing compassion to my circumstances, and finally beginning to cultivate a relationship with my body built on trust and courage, a relationship where I could fully embrace that I was not helpless, but a powerful agent in my own healing journey. Although I had relief for those three days, my symptoms haven't completely gone away, and I do believe that in order to fully heal my reflux, it will take a continual practice of returning to this mindset in addition to a combination of lifestyle changes and proper diet. But what I have observed is that when I have moments where I feel the truth of being this powerful agent in my own healing, I have moments of genuine relief. I've been very private in the past when it came to my health and feel vulnerable in sharing this with all of you. But I want you to know that I'm on this journey just like you. I'm finding my way back to nature, back to myself, back to balance. 
My boyfriend David likes to say, try softer. And I think this idea of letting go, softening, and getting out of my own way is just what my body is asking of me. My invitation to you is to simply pause, get curious, and ask yourself, what is my body asking of me right now? This theme of turning inward and getting curious about what our body is communicating is potent in this week's episode about sleep with Buffy co-founder and CEO Leo Wang. Leo runs Buffy, a successful startup that makes sustainable comforters, sheets, and pillows. He became interested in sleep after suffering from insomnia when he was working as a consultant in his early 20s. I don't want to give away too much about what happened to Leo because it's his story to tell. But suffice it to say, his cure for his insomnia did not come from any external source either. It's interesting to note the remarkable parallels that I experienced over the last two weeks with those that Leo shares in this episode. We recorded our conversation about a month ago, and it's possible that me editing this episode helped me to understand some things about myself and my relationship with my body. That's how I know his wisdom will be so impactful for you. If you've ever had issues with falling asleep, staying asleep, or waking up feeling rested, this episode is for you. In this episode, Leo shares his personal difficulties with sleep and the surprising way he resolved his insomnia. It's not what you might think. You'll learn some practical tips for getting a restful sleep, how the teachings of Taoism can help us sleep better, Leo's personal rituals for more rest, and the biggest misconception about sleep according to Leo. I found this episode to be rich and profound in ways I couldn't have imagined. I think you'll take away universal lessons for how to live your life in a more harmonious way regardless of your relationship with sleep at this moment in time. Lastly, I want to shout out those of you who wrote to me about trying Qigong as part of the first Our Nature Challenge from episode 10 of the podcast with Qigong practitioner Michael Ventura. I'm so excited to hear that you're trying Qigong for yourself and getting curious about if it's beneficial for you in your life. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave a five-star review. And if you know someone who is suffering from sleep issues, maybe a friend or a family member, be kind and share this episode with them. I want to get right into this conversation with Leo Wang, one that I know you're going to love. So let's get started. All right, here we go. Here we go. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, me I've I actually ever since I envisioned the show, mm. I wanted to have you on. Well, that is that's <laughs> just too much. I I can't even I can't even. But I've been super excited to come too. So something I I thought about and I realized was I'm speaking with you and your name is Leo mm-hmm. and you are a Leo. Yes. And it's Leo season. So oh, I think wow. this is really kismet. Planetary alignment, yes. <laughs> this, is, this is meant to be. <laughs> I think so, too. Um, it's actually my birthday in a few days. Thanks for reminding me. Oh, happy birthday. Happy early birthday. Thank you. We got to know each other because I freelanced for your company, Buffy. And I have to also admit that before I started working for Buffy, I was a little bit skeptical. I wasn't sure if you guys were greenwashing. And I 
I wanted to find out for myself. And when I actually mm. started working there in the short time that I did, I really felt like I got a sense of how serious you were about sustainability mm. and about consciousness and conscious business practices. Mm. And so for those listeners who aren't familiar with Buffy, can you sure. tell people what Buffy does? Yeah. And Buffy is a new sustainable home goods brand um, launched in New York City about a year and a half ago by a few co-founders and myself. Um, we have a very, very popular <laughs> comforter that's actually entirely made from eucalyptus and a 70 or so recycled bottles that we take out of landfill and ocean um, to create the fluffiness that goes inside. Um, we're actually expanding into a range of bedding products um, this year. And beyond that, we have a lot of ambitions for making furniture and the rest of home goods a lot more sustainable. So talk about that. Why eucalyptus? Mm, well, eucalyptus, it's a little bit of an eccentric material, but as you probably know, most of bedding is cotton or polyester. Cotton, it just happens to be, for those of us in the textiles industry, we kind of all regard it as an environmental hazard. It eats up an incredible amount of water, um, just purely from a sustainability angle. But from a sustainable growth angle, while also helping a lot of um, developing economies in terms of getting people a cash crop, it does compete often with sustainable development um, objectives and initiatives, such as um, actually getting enough food yield um, in many places of the world, right? So for that reason, we decided to chuck cotton out the window and look for something a little bit better. Eucalyptus is a soft wood that grows very quickly, easily grown in managed and sustainably managed plantations around the world. Ours is grown in Europe, in Austria, in a little town called Lenzing by a family that's been doing it for some time. And the best thing about it is it uses about 90% less water to cultivate and to process um, compared to cotton. It saves on average four or five, 6,000 gallons of water per comforter that we're making. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are you the only comforter brand that uses eucalyptus? I don't think so, but certainly one of the very few. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You talked a little bit about different materials uh, like cotton and in terms of environmental use and, but what about sleeping, sleep quality and why does it matter mm. what we sleep in? In terms of, you know, the, this relationship between what we sleep in and how well we sleep, um, I think there's really two ways to look at it, right? There's like a baseline threshold beyond which um, it's not really what you sleep with or what you sleep in where that's going to drive improved better the heights of sleep quality for every individual, right? But I think there is a baseline that does, um, that does matter when it comes to what you're sleeping in. If you have um, a certain uh, physical requirement for support in certain parts of your body or your spine, then obviously looking at the right mattress in terms of firmness as well as the material makeup, different things like coconut fibers to foam to latex to coil springs all react with our bodies in a different way, right? 
Um, I, for example, cannot sleep on a foam mattress for the life of me. And if I do, I have to sleep on my stomach. It just doesn't work. It hurts, right? So there are some, I think, physical requirements. I think the bucket that a lot of people don't naturally think about as much, which obviously as a sustainable bedding brand, I'm a little bit more concerned about, are all the materials that are going into your bed, right? If you think about it, your bed is the most intimate place in your bedroom, is the most intimate place in your home. You spend a lot of time there. You and your loved ones spend a lot of time there. And what is literally wrapping them, holding them, cuddling them day in and day out are materials that you should probably be as concerned about as the materials that, or the ingredients that you bring into your kitchen, for example. What I think about a lot are how a lot of bedding products are actually made from, for example, petroleum and petroleum derivatives. We're talking about synthetic foams that make up our mattresses, the fills in our pillow. Not all of that is really materials that you want long-term, eight hours a night, month after month, year after year, exposure to not only in terms physically, but you are breathing a lot of the materials, especially as it breaks down over time, right? A lot of what else is the present status quo are animal materials, animal byproducts, animal fibers, such as down, wools, etc., which agreeably are definitely fantastic in terms of their hand feel or the way that they might regulate temperature. But again, just from my health standpoint, I leave it in the judgment of every kind of consumer, or at least the consumer, you and, you and I, to think about really, hmm, these animal materials, what a lot of people don't know is that they often end up harboring um, a small miniature microcosmic ecosystem of their own, right? In the form of, for example, mites, um, dust mites often creep into down and inhabit it. It just happens to be kind of perfect for them as a growing medium. Um, they often feed on the down, for example, or the animal fiber. And without getting too grotesque and detailed, um, it just ends up I being a wonderful petri dish. Right now. Right. Um, so what we think about is kind of a no-brainer. Well, what if there are plant-based materials, such as eucalyptus, or new um, materials that we can even synthesize made from plant-based materials, right? Um, that can actually present not either a choice between an animal byproduct, whether for ethical or health reasons you may not be into, or a petroleum byproduct, which I think pretty naturally is just not the most exciting thing you want to wrap you and your loved ones around every night. So for example, our, our bedding often uses eucalyptus, but we're actually about to launch a sheet set collection that isn't dyed from synthetic and chemical dyes, right? Um, imagine, most of us don't even think about it, but we have this beautiful pop of color of blue or beige or pink in our bedroom, and we love it. But really what it requires 99% of the time today, the consumer is not even aware that they're just bringing synthetic and chemical dyes into their bedroom um, and wrapping, cocooning themselves into it every night. What if those dyes were actually made from things like pomegranate peel, or walnut husk, or geranium petals, or other things that you wouldn't mind bringing into your kitchen, that you wouldn't mind bringing onto your body topically. Why is it any different for this place that we spend, or at least our bodies spend, so much of our time? I'd imagine, even psychologically, 
knowing that what you're sleeping in and, and what the dyes are that are close to your body at night, um, that they come from natural places has an effect on you as, as you sleep. I mean, it's not sleep. So many people have trouble getting to sleep Mm. and, and easing into sleep. So that idea that what you're sleeping in comes from petroleum-based chemicals or you're sleeping in a colony of dust mites doesn't seem super relaxing to me. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. It's just another thing I think people have to contend with. I think the good thing is most people don't really know well, <laughs> right now, now today <laughs> that, uh, that that is happening. But um, I think the consumer just across the board is starting to become much more thoughtful and considerate and aware. And eventually, um, the companies who are in this industry will, by virtue of consumer pressure, have to change. And I think Buffy is right now trying to shift the paradigm by making products that, in a way, educate the consumer on what is possible or, to the best of our ability, kind of rewrite expectations. And as that happens... Um, I think more and more people will become aware. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talked about natural dyeing, and you actually worked with someone, uh, Maria Elena mm, of yes. Fragmentario, yes, who I awesome. had on episode five oh, of the wow, podcast. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So um, w- tell me about how you worked with her and what that was like. I think uh, what she really helped us with was the ingredient story for natural dyes. Natural dyes is not really a new thing. If you think about it for thousands of years, thousands of years, people have been dyeing things naturally around the world. Um, But often it's like turmeric or indigo, just something that you're not sure is all that exciting, just at like face value, or is going to have like the most commercial quality to it. Oftentimes natural dyes do suffer with long-term use. Um, when you wash it or with UV light exposure often, um, it can kind of fade and get a little bit less than ideal. So really what she helped us with was this thing that I believe was absolutely necessary to kind of push natural dye an inch further, which was to get an ingredient story, an ingredient makeup that people were excited about, that people could understand, that people wanted to bring into their bedroom and wanted to wrap their kids and their husbands and their wives and their friends and everybody in, right? And that was kind of creating these ingredient recipes that took us away from this kind of really old school, ancient ideas of like indigo to things like pomegranate peel and walnut husk and geranium petals and other flowers and really fruits from this kind of botanical palette. That was much more exciting. I think it's going to be much more accessible. And again, just make sustainability that much more appealing and accessible for the average consumer. Yeah. So what are the... I mean, have the Buffy sheets launched yet, or can you? Not tell- yet. Okay, so you, can you tell us what the ingredients are? Or not yet. This is. <laughs> mm, I'd have to kill everybody who listens to this <laughs> okay. show. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but I think probably by the time when are they supposed to launch? Honestly, I would tell you, but my brand marketing director would yeah. kill me for it. <laughs> and yeah, and, and then a bunch Carson. of people would know. Um, when are they supposed to launch? They are supposed to launch um, at the end of 
the month, actually. So quite oh, soon. Oh, great. Yeah. So probably by the time this episode comes out, they will just have launched. So yeah, that's really exciting. That sounds right. Yeah. This is a teaser. Okay. This is a teaser. You heard it here first. Uh, I want to actually talk about your upbringing a bit because mm. I know that you grew up around your dad's mills mm. in China and that that Those. really began to influence your thinking about sustainability and about material production. Can you talk a bit about how that influenced your career trajectory or even just your personal trajectory? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a bit of context, my mom and my dad, we come from a, a really kind of poor backwater in China. When I was born, um, the two of them were making about $50 a month together. So technically, we were below World Bank definition for poverty line. Um, and I think why, why this, this question is really interesting is because the two of them busted their asses to build a weaving mill and an operation that now employs, it's really a campus of about 500 people who live and work there where 250 state-of-the-art looms are pumping out about 50,000 meters of fabric every day, which is enough to run up and down Manhattan a few times. And growing up in that environment and seeing that process and being part of the family narrative to go really from point A to B there was obviously very eye-opening and very, very strange too. Um, there's a lot of questions that you get confronted with. You see a mill get stood up in the middle of, you know, early 2000s China when there is not much of an EPA and not much regulatory supervision and not much understanding or really value premise for sustainability in a country that was just opened up by Deng Xiaoping to celebrate commercial success. And so what you come to confront is how much labor and how much raw material stuff and how much energy and energy consumption is going in one end of the process and how much just raw stuff and raw waste is coming out on the other end. Obviously, if you think about that in the context of a family, you can probably imagine that it is not only ethically, but relationship-wise, interesting to study and talk about. Um, I don't want to like talk it up like it was like the source of great, I don't know, um, conflict, right? Yeah. Or a parental child-like disappointment or whatever. But it was just very interesting to see. And I think it has created a sense of responsibility um, that therefore translates into Buffy as kind of a requirement for how we think about things. Um, almost in like a, we have a chip on our shoulder kind of way. Yeah. Right? Um, my parents made a lot of bedding products in a traditional way that sold very well on the shelves of Bed Bath & Beyond and Kohl's and Target and QVC. And it was made to the specifications that those retailers wanted it to be. It was really made with cost in mind and with, hey, this is what the consumer already knows. This is what's going to sell. Let's make it this way. Don't talk to me about anything else. But in this age of a more 
direct-to-consumer or really brand-driven and therefore identity-driven um, consumer landscape, Buffy has a chance and I have a chance to maybe do what my parents never had a chance to do. And that's to kind of rewrite what it is that people are buying. Are they involved with you and Buffy in some way? Absolutely. Um, my father is very involved and he is uh, actually just flew to China yesterday to do some final troubleshooting on one of the colors in the uh, natural dye collection of colors. Um, exciting. He might work harder than I. <laughs> That's really exciting. He's a cool guy. I want to keep talking about sleep because I know that that is a passion of yours. Or mm. I don't, Well, I mean, maybe you can tell me whether it's a passion or an interest. At what degree uh, yeah. does it fuel you? But was this something that you were interested in before you started Buffy? Or was this something that as a result of starting Buffy, you became fascinated yeah. with? Yeah. You know, anybody who's fascinated with sleep, I, I don't think it's like a passion or an interest. It's a problem. <laughs> okay. It starts being off as a problem. Okay. So tell, problem, yeah. Right? What was, how did that come um, to be? And for me, really, this problem, which I think, you know, sparked the idea of interest and then study and then passion and so on and so forth, really, um, really happened in my, in my kind of early 20s. I had studied economic development in grad school and, you know, I was a young man eager to prove myself, make a statement, and I was on this social agenda. And I worked as um, a management consultant, but purely on public and social sector in the developing world. So I was assigned to education projects in Pakistan or healthcare projects in Ethiopia. And I really put everything I had into it. Um, Finally, out of school, in the real world, let's do something, right? I think I quickly, quickly, quickly burned out for lack of knowing myself and knowing where my boundaries are and really understanding this principle of balance, which is not really something that people, or most people, or maybe just me, <laughs> came to understand or come to understand until this point in my life. Um, I worked super hard. I didn't take very good care of myself. And I didn't really sleep all that much for lack of appreciation of what sleep means. I think like many people, sleep is that kind of like dead space. That corridor I have to go through to get from the room I'm in to the room I want to be in, right? And gosh, if it weren't for those eight hours of sleep, I could probably spend more time with my friends, do more, yeah. study, achieve more, whatever it is I want, right? And we live in a society, a very, I think, achievement-oriented, production-oriented, output-oriented um, society that is only really starting to understand self-care and is really starting to understand self-care, I think, in a very like achievement-oriented way. <laughs> It's very hard to escape. For me, I got to a point where I couldn't sleep. And, and it was essentially, you know, a common insomnia um, where I wouldn't be able to fall asleep until like 3 or 4 a.m. And I would be awake by 5 a.m. But really, by 4 a.m., I was already starting to dream about, in a semi-conscious way, 
and plan in a semi-conscious way my meetings, presentations, and work mm. for the next day. Not atypical, right? Um, the highly ambitious overachiever in all of us probably can identify with that, right? So this is when I started to really get into it. And I started to think about like sleep volume. And then when you dig into sleep volume, volume of hours, right? You start to think about sleep quality, the quality of those hours. And then when you start to think about the quality of those hours, you start to start to study consistency. And then when you start to, cons- start to study consistency, you start to learn about interruption in sleep. When you start to learn about interruption and how you can control for interruption, you start to learn about things like not being able to bank sleep um, and how just gorging on sleep, binging on sleep is not really a recovery method. And you can really go down the rabbit hole and structure for yourself an understanding of what good sleep and what you want to, again, achieve with sleep. And I think that was the whole problem. I don't think I found my way out of the rabbit hole with more of this achievement or ambition or solve it, fix it mentality. I often find when I talk to other people who don't sleep well, the fix it mentality is the first mentality resort to, but it often exacerbates the issue. So they're trying to achieve, they're still trying to achieve with sleep in a way that just doesn't work. Yeah, you're trying to do something about it. And I think the whole problem, at least for me, is that I was trying to do too much in the first place. Which brings me to what eventually I think was a pathway out of this, this madness, <laughs> which is a funny quote um, from... Eastern thought and Eastern philosophy, which is the opposite, I think, of doing in many ways. And a lot of Eastern thought stems from really Chinese and subcontinent um, Hindustani uh, thinking and philosophy. And it just so happens that both of these schools of philosophy kind of come more from a place of not doing. And in fact, It is coming from a human instinct of not doing in order to return to ourselves. It is a belief that we have a natural programming which will correct and alter for imbalance those things that need to be fixed without the help of melatonin, without the help of binging on sleep, without the help of spending hours and hours into the night reading about sleep on WebMD, right? visiting doctors, et cetera, et cetera, and just, I think, in some ways, making the problem worse. There's a line in Taoism um, that says, do not doing. In Chinese, it's called wu wei, which means basically achieving without achieving, right? And it became such a fundamental idea in Chinese culture that it is actually still written on some of the eaves in traditional calligraphy by a Tang and then successive Han and Qing dynasty emperor of the Forbidden Palace in Beijing, if you are to go today, right? That is to the extent which it took hold of Chinese thought. I think what that meant for me was starting to say, let me relax for a second. Let me then accept the fact that I have this sleep problem. Let me set aside all of the 
kind of like exercise regimen and all of the dietary GNC supplements that I have been combing through. Literally, I had pill bottles, vitamin bottles, supplement bottles that I thought may help in stacks. Right? Like valerian and stuff like that, oh, different herbs. Every yeah. <laughs> herb, every vitamin that you could think of. Um, the rose hips, the like milkweeds, everything, right? But let me stop and just accept the fact that this is kind of an issue for me. And then let me just see what my body is asking for. Let me contact my body a little bit more when I lie down at night, when I'm about to go to sleep, when I wake up. In a way, it is a little bit meditative in the sense that you're just trying to find out what you're already asking for. And what maybe your body and nature knows you need. For me, this brought me to actually a diet way of thinking and a dietary response to what actually I was really, really struggling with. I ended up recognizing that I was super imbalanced from a traditional Chinese medicine, which is very much also rooted in Taoism, um, point of view, uh, where essentially to make it as kind of straightforward as possible, instead of being balanced in kind of yin and mm -hmm. yang energies, I was over, over just falling off the side of the ship with yang energy. <laughs> Um, Which is, for people who don't know, like, can you put it in gen yeah. or the gender? I'll put it in Chinese, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, to put it in English, yin is a balance to yang, and yang is a balance to yin. And yin represents darkness, it represents rest, it represents stillness, it represents incubation. It represents things like sleep, things like winter. Yang represents life. Yang represents creation. Yang represents energy. And you see it in things like movement. You see it in summer or spring. And yin and yang are actually spoken about in many different ways across many cultures. And they have their kind of corollaries in Ayurvedic culture, but they have their co corollaries, I've found, through a lot of travel around the world, in all kinds of places, even as simple as just kind of folk wisdom as to what you need when you get sick. Oh, maybe an herbal tea, right? Yeah. What I found was that actually through reading and kind of consulting these kind of alternative and in some ways holistic styles of understanding ourselves... And again, I really want to emphasize, at this point, it wasn't like I didn't start reading traditional Chinese medicine and understanding traditional Chinese medicine diet, which I'll come to in a second, because I wanted to fix my sleep. I didn't think there would be any connection to sleep. I just got there. Um, and I think I just want to emphasize it wasn't in an attempt to fix the problem. It was just me studying my body in a way, right? Myself. When was this? Yeah, this was um, this was about halfway through this decade, 2014, 2015. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, I learned through study of traditional Chinese medicine that there are different body types. That if you want to look at yin and study it a little further, you can break it down into different body types. And to kind of make it simple, these are all the kind of body types that we see out there. Some of us are bigger and smaller, thinner and thicker. Um, some of us uh, have kind of a more energetic disposition. Some of us have a more kind of inward or slow and still disposition. And all of these things are natural um, and right and good. And kind of understanding what body type you are when you're healthy was really a kind of template for me. A moment where I could look in the mirror and see, oh, that's who I am. And wait, 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 wait a minute. These things that I'm doing right now are not myself, right? I study Ayurveda, and so we would call yeah. it the doshas and vata, mm -hmm. pitta, and kapha. But my understanding is in Chinese medicine, they correlate with elements. Yes. Like wood, metal. Yes, wood, <laughs> fire, metal, uh, earth, and water. And each of them have an elemental purpose in the whole, um, whether you want to think of the whole as society, nature, your own body. Um, but each of us have these elements to a slightly different proportion and lean a little bit toward one or the other. And I happen to be much more of a wood or metal. I was going to guess. Yeah. I was going to guess wood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I happen to be, I think, in a healthy state, much more of a wood or metal kind of personality, um, as well as body type. And I don't want to get too, like, colorful or expressive yeah. about what that means, but suffice it to say that that's kind of where I net out on this. And there was a lot of fire in what I was kind of consuming and living at the time. Uh, I think my body was worst when I was actually in Pakistan, sleeping very little, which means very little investment in the yin recuperative still, kind of returning to self and natural healing energies, and much more on the yang side of just work, 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 24-7, high-stress environment, I'm yelling at you, you're yelling at me, and we're all eating very spicy Pakistani food in a highly humid highly hot Pakistani summer. That's right? a pitta imbalance right there in Ayurveda. That's just all fire. <laughs> right. And so you can kind of see how, like, if you're aware of this layer, you would probably be aware of this obvious imbalance and departure from yourself. I was unable to sleep, a super kind of, very like, almost my limbs were heavy, exercise was hard, my skin was terrible, and I was breaking out everywhere. Um, everything was wrong about my body. So it wasn't really until I recognized that there are these bodily needs and bodily wisdoms that you can kind of resort to that I started to recognize that actually I need to, in some ways, for me personally, to return to my body type. There are a few simple things I needed to do. It was to kind of cut out alcohol. It was to eat almost less highly nutritious foods like fats and meats, nuts, and actually come back to very simple things like just simple grains, which are very neutralizing and balancing. It was to 
relax the way I lived and interacted with others and my day-to-day experience, stop trying to save the world overnight and getting really stressed out about it, and putting that stress not only on myself but others, and come back to a more steady, calm version of yourself. And by practicing all of these things and over time and kind of sticking to it, the results were kind of immediate and obvious. And I found balance as far as what it means for me within, you know, immediately in some senses, but over months and over the years, definitely I've returned to myself and was able to kind of heal that insomnia in a way, right? Coming back full circle. Thank you for sharing that because one, I think so many people can relate. We live in a society, like you said, that really praises achievement and the external and no one's living inside your body. And so many people, I think, look okay on the outside, but inside are really struggling with, you know, feeling imbalanced and feeling unhealthy. And I think the one of the main reasons why I started this podcast was a desire to look to nature to reflect back what we already know about ourselves. Um, And so I think in sort of learning about the natural world, because we are nature, we can in turn learn about ourselves and kind of like sync up Mm. so we can be in more harmony and balance. Mm. What does that look like today in practice in terms of sleep for you like do you have any rituals do you have any things that have really helped you feel calm feel more imbalanced like you talked about yeah absolutely i think there's two parts to how i think about that one part is understanding myself and knowing when my body is giving me certain signals as to what it needs or what is astray and the other part is then kind of reacting to that and letting my body or enabling my body to respond to it, right? Kind of getting out of the way, if you will, right? Um, I think the first part of that, it's going to kind of depend on how well you know yourself. I think the basic idea is like, we are very busy. We live fast-paced lives. We're all highly educated. And we think a lot. We're in our heads a lot, Whether that has to do with what we want to do at work or in our feelings, whatever it is, we're in our heads a lot. And I'm sure everyone's heard this, but just for the sake of beating a dead horse even, try to contact your body a little bit more. That means a lot of things to different people, but just almost take it at those three words and ask yourself what that means, right? Whether it means sitting down and just feeling what your body sensations are telling you. Um, or meditating, or however you want to kind of go about that, right? Some people do it through dance or yoga. It's your own thing. But try to contact your body. Understanding the way your body is operating and the signals it's sending you is huge. What does that look like for you? One amazing way for me that I found is really helpful is actually through a lot of, again, traditional Chinese medicine, but particularly acupuncture, body of knowledge in reading the way our bodies are doing, right? Um, If you go to a traditional Chinese medicine or acupuncture um, specialist, the first thing they'll do is actually 
they'll have you stick out your tongue and do funny things like, you know, um, read your pulse with you, right? Um, and they'll actually kind of like look at your eyeballs a little bit and kind of observe the glow or energy of your skin. It's so funny, we take a lot of this stuff for granted, but it is like traffic lights for your body. Oftentimes, we're growing up in an environment where we look at it very cosmetically, very superficially, very shallowly, and then we learn to kind of like move on. But in a way, we have to kind of return to understanding that that stuff isn't just important for how attractive you are. It's your body messaging, right? Um, and I think for me, one of those, like to give a couple of examples, one of them is I often can tell that I'm not going to sleep well at night via my stress levels. I do run a busy startup that grows very quickly that requires me to kind of be emotionally sensitive and emotionally aware and emotionally accommodating to 50 people in a room, right? And that can be quite stressful. And if I'm doing that late at night, um, then, you know, that's basically your mind space, right? Going into, going into, going into bed. And I often can tell that I'm stressed by my pulse, now, different people have different stress signals in your pulse, but I challenge you to get to the place where you can tell the different forms of stress by your pulse. There is so anxiety. Feel your pulse? I do, I do. And <laughs> I don't cool. <laughs> even have to put my finger on my wrist or my, or my neck. I literally put my head down on my pillow, and within a few minutes, I can hear or not hear my pulse. And sometimes that pulse is very, very slow, too slow, and almost a little slippery, where it's like the rise and fall of it is almost like a little bit weak and sallow, but it's loud. It's this like bass, and I can hear it, and I know <laughs> that this is, um, this is my body telling me that it's a little hot. Mm. Hot in terms of not just physical temperature and activity, but mental activity, emotional activity, that kind of fire and yang that we were talking about a second ago. Anxiety feels to me differently in terms of my pulse. Um, stress about a meeting feels differently, and I can almost tell the difference between these things now for having contact on my body enough for it. And it's, it's fun. I think it's an interesting challenge to try and get to know your body on that level. It's very different, again, from challenging yourself to like figure out everything that you can do to fix your body. Like, here are the specialists yeah. I can see, the like yeah. experts I can consult, the supplements I can take, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, it's about knowing yourself more than it's about fixing it. I think the second part is the alternative to fixing it. The second part of how I think about it is like, I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just trying to get out of the way. First, I say... Hey, it's gonna be okay if I get like two, three, four hours of sleep tonight. I recognize that. I actually almost am at the point where I believe that my body requires that in order to alter and repair and revert. In Taoism and most Eastern thought, everything is about balance. It takes darkness to see the light and light to see the dark. A candle, a candle lit is a shadow cast, and the origin of everything is in its opposite. We tend to consider the middle of the summer, when you think maybe this kind of like energy of young must be at its peak. 
Yeah, in a way it is at its peak, but if you think about it, the energy of yin must be so strong to start turning the steering wheel in the opposite direction toward fall and toward winter. And if you think about winter, yeah, you think maybe that yin and still and almost death-like energy must be at its strongest, but actually the energy of life must be somewhere in there to turn it around, get through, break through the layers of ice and cold to bring spring back. And I think there's something like that in our bodies and its rhythms. And for example, in this case, in sleep, I am very willing to accept the fact that I've pushed my body too far. And maybe actually getting nine hours of sleep tonight is not what it needs necessarily. There's an acceptance first that I think is necessary to getting out of the way. I think a few other things that I try to do to get out of the way is I know for myself that if I eat very late at night, the digestive system in Eastern thought in many ways is at the root of our health, right? Um, as much as sleep is important, we actually believe that sleep is a outcome. It is a derivative of what you're putting into your body, first and foremost, right? Um, that kind of is the point of origination, right? Through everything else that water falls out, how you feel, your emotions, et cetera, et cetera, right? I guess that's why we care so much about what we eat. But one thing that we don't think about that often is the pace at which we eat, the way we are digesting foods, starting from the moment we smell what is placed in front of us to the moment it's put between our incisors and then the moment it hits our molars before the minute it even hits our GI tract. What we often don't think about is the time of day when we're eating, and this is a really big one. A lot of people, we live busy lives, um, we might not even get home and have all of our family around us until late at night. It's tough, right? Yeah. It's really, really hard um, to achieve everything we want to achieve while taking care of ourselves. And stepping back, I guess that is, that's kind of life, right? We burn ourselves out for what we want. <laughs> but eating late at night, I know for myself, and just through anecdotal experience, for many other people often impacts the way they're able to fall asleep and stay asleep. If your digestive system is working super hard and working overtime at night, it is really, really hard for your body to find this kind of restorative state that it needs to get into. For me, it actually, digestion is, is not, I know it's invisible, but it's a high intensity sport. It is a very demanding physical activity, right? I would say it's probably more demanding than walking around or thinking at the end of the day. Um, all of these muscles are at play, the blood flow at play, the circulation at play. It is very, very labor intensive on your body. <laughs> Um, two things for me personally, just to share why that's important. One, it creates even more heat, actually. And again, for me, I err on the side of having too much heat and too much energy and too much yang. No wonder it's difficult to reach a state of kind of coolness and relaxedness yeah. at night. I think secondly, it's just working so hard that I often wake up in the middle of the night for it and recognize that like, oh, wow, I can feel this sense of physicality or weight or just objects right in my midsection and torso 
Um, Are you talking about like reflux? Do you get acid reflux? um, I don't even get acid reflux, but that is definitely like at the top of the queue of signals for sure. Well, that's, I suffer from that (laughs) actually. And yeah, it's, it's my body. Like it's instead of, you know, the digestion, it's too much heat in, in your system, yeah. too much yang. That's it's a, definitely a yang. My doctor is a Chinese yeah. medicine doctor, and he's uh, always okay. telling me, he's like, Alyssa, you're too much yang, too much yang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been trying to do all these things to, right, right. to, yeah. to balance myself. Yeah. In general, I would also just say, like, again, sleep is a very important moment of ying, right? It's not that corridor between like the room today and the room tomorrow. Like, can I just get there as quickly as possible? It's really important to have both. Um, that means, you know, whatever you can do to create as much ying in your bedroom and your sleep habits, and even who you are when you roll into bed, <laughs> is very, very helpful, right? You should be in a relaxed state you should feel like the temperature in the room is cooler than it was during the day. Your room should feel as much as possible like a cave. Light sources, I know we're all working super hard to get great light in our New York apartments. <laughs> but in the bedroom, it's actually kind of, a, kind of a compromise to the quality of sleep that you can achieve. Our skin and our very thin eyelashes are actually very sensitive to it, especially in the early morning. No one likes waking up at five when the sun is rising, right? Those final few hours of sleep matter. So try to create that kind of cave-like experience. These are all very, very simple things, and there's a lot of, I think, like really simple, I guess, quote-unquote, tactics that you can look up on Google, but I think the idea is what's really important, which is remember that this is your body's moment to go into that ying restorative state. It's not just a pause, it's not just a break. It is active and it is doing something very, very important. So enable that. Yeah, I think it's a mindset shift around, it it seems like all the things you're saying are related to this idea of like giving to yourself. This sleep is a way to give to yourself so that during your waking hours, you can do all those amazing achievements. And they've studied and They've had many studies that show that you're more creative, you're more productive. And so I think, you know, I'm just thinking about myself, even shifting that mindset to that place of giving to yourself instead of this being a burden or this being something that um, you have to do or something that you fear can be maybe really helpful for people. Yeah, like I it's agree. the ultimate self-care ritual. Yeah, I think giving to yourself... Is um, it's like a new way of thinking about things that everybody is like very excited about, and rightly so. And I think, I think that the one layer I'd want to like push that, if I could, is not only giving to yourself, but maybe just stopping flat out at being yourself. Be yourself. We tend again in our busy societies where there is so much that we can do, so much to compete for our attention, so much that we are thinking about outside of ourselves and about ourselves, that we forget that we are our bodies sometimes. We think that we are Leo, and Leo is the CEO of this company, and he has to be responsible for these things, and he's expected to be like this and that and that, and Leo can do all this and that if he puts his mind to it and plans and da 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 
and I've forgotten who I am. Everything else I just mentioned is pretty much a figment of my imagination, and to some extent a shared hallucination with a few people like (laughs) yourself. Who I am, mostly, is this body of mine. And we talk a lot about being ourselves in terms of knowing who we are, and loving that, and respecting that, and cutting out external influence, and being the individual, as opposed to what society requires of the individual. But oftentimes we forget that that really carries over to our bodies, that at the end of the day, even more than everything, we are our bodies. Yeah, yeah, that's so, that's so beautifully put. <laughs> it really was, it really is like... And plus you have this soothing voice. People are going to be listening to this and just wanting to create a ritual around their sleep. I feel like it's going to be so inspiring. Um, but speaking of, what, what is your ritual for sleep? Mm. What does that look like? Um, my ritual for sleep um, is kind of an all-day-long thing, I guess. It's not really like a pre-bedtime ritual. Um, which is great, but I know that if I'm not doing things from the beginning of the day, then I cannot look at my cell phone at the end of the day or something like that, but it's not going to help or really do anything differently. I know that, for example, if I'm accumulating speed and speed and speed and go, go, go over the course of the day, like I can watch like the funniest stand-up at the end of the day and still end up with this momentum and inertia Mm -hmm. in my mind as I fall asleep, right? It's very hard to say that you're going to fix again, fix it at the end of the day, right? Um, I know that it starts in the morning. I love to walk the work. It's a perfect half hour because I can really ground myself in who I know myself to be and who I want to be during the course of this day. What time do you wake up? Um, I wake up at varying hours, okay. um, depending on sleep and what's going on. Sometimes I wake up half an hour before work, um, and sometimes I wake up a couple of hours before work. Um, again, I try not to make it programmatic, mm-hmm. which, which I think is okay if you're very healthy, but I think for, for some of us who are like struggling, yeah. the program layer is not a helpful layer sometimes. Yeah, if your body Um, needs rest, give it the rest. Yeah, like awareness is good, um, but programming I'm always a little bit wary of, just personally. Yeah. I start off my day thinking about this in a way. Um, Like walking to work is, is I guess, my program, right, in a way, Um, as much of a program as that that might be. I try to keep a cool head at work. Okay. (laughs) But I also try to eat my meals, which is very important at good times. I know how my digestive system works. Mm -hmm. And I know that if I'm not eating smaller but regular meals, that my digestive system, it's like throwing too many logs into a fire all at once. It's just smothered, right? And now it's not able to keep up, right? I know that in the evening, um, my last meal really needs to be around 6 o'clock or earlier. And if I need to go out with friends or see my family and have dinner, that's fine. That's totally cool. I just have a lighter meal and that's okay, right? Um, I try to like, I know that if I have a big meal, it's not going to go down well. Sometimes it still happens, right? Yeah. And that's life and we're humans, but I try to, you know, err on the side of a lighter one. Um, I generally find that if I can squeeze in aerobic exercise, 
as opposed to, for example, lifting. Um, uh, that helps, but that's personal. I don't want to extrapolate beyond that. I think that's just helpful for regulating breathing and getting your body in touch with your lungs um, and your body in general. But some people, that might actually be achieved through lifting, for example, right? I find that for me in lifting, it's just more of like a stress creator, um, but that's just me. Um, and all of this stuff is like, pretty mundane yeah right? i mean it's i like, like that it's all kind of free i think we're such a consumer culture that all even for myself i was thinking that you might say go buy this thing or you know take this herb or or do this or buy this machine or you but it's but really i mean if you think about it for thousands yeah. upon thousands of years people have been sleeping yeah they didn't have all of these fancy doodads or whatever absolutely yeah i have one more question before we go into the last part okay what is the biggest misconception about sleep that you have found that you would like to dispel actually i feel like that you know i'll just take the opportunity here to emphasize again like sleep is not its independent thing we think about like sleep as like I'm sleeping well, great. If I'm not sleeping well, like, oh, why? Like, and sometimes we think like, oh, it might be connected to like our stress levels or our emotional health. But it kind of stops there. We're like, oh, that's probably the only other thing that's affecting it. But trust me, (laughs) sleep and your quality of sleep is nothing more than a manifestation of your overall health. If you are healthy overall, and you have a balanced body, um, an emotional and psychological body as well, um, you will sleep well. (laughs) If your diet is good and you get the right kind of exercise that you personally need, if you have the right level of social and emotional interactions with others for you, um, if you are doing what you want to during your days, if, et cetera, et cetera. If you are a healthy person, I think sleep is nothing more than, I know this isn't really me trying to correct a misconception, but it's almost me more trying to create the right conception. (laughs) Sleep should come together because you are healthy. Do not try to fix sleep. Uh, The last section I ask every guest is a rapid Mm. fire round. So get ready for the fire. But but it doesn't need to be rapid. It can it can be done in a very ying 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 way. Yeah. 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 What is your favorite place in nature? A cornfield. A cornfield. A cornfield. It's a rapid fire, like I just give the answer, but no. I know I'd like I'd like you to explain it. Ah, okay. Well I think I think um, most people's favorite place in nature should just be whatever part of nature they've spent, they have the most familiarity with. Yeah. And I grew up in a place where um, there are a lot of cornfields of all different types and heights and maturities in terms of when you harvest them. And I, as a teenager, just drove around these cornfields a lot and sometimes walked through the cornfields a lot. And 
love the smell of it, even when I go and visit my parents every smother, every smother, every summer. Um, Where were the cornfields? Uh, in in New Jersey, in oh, central wow. New Jersey, in Amazing. Mercer County. Yes, New Jersey cornfields. Yes. Okay. What is the animal, mineral, or plant that resonates with you the most? Animal, mineral, or plant? Yeah. Ooh. I know. The universe of possibilities. I'm going to go with an animal. The animal that resonates most with me. Ah. I mean, dogs. (laughs) I'm not going to get fancy here. I think... Just the dogs walking down the street in New York City. Honestly, I'm in my head until I see somebody walking their dog. And all of a sudden, I'm in my smile, right? Like, it's just the way it is for everybody, right? Seeing, like, a funny dog or a cute dog or a goofy dog or a friendly dog, just... That resonates a lot. What is the one thing we can do right now to connect with the natural world and bring more harmony to our lives? I also have a cat named Zizi who I love absolutely. <laughs> Sorry about that, Zizi. I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. Embrace the fact that everything is part of the natural world and stop looking for it. Even us and man, quote unquote, and the ugliest inventions of man are a part of nature. Nature made us, made this thing, and... I think it's okay if um, we're not sitting in some eco-resort in southern Spain or visiting Koyasan and its Buddhist temples and sycamore groves in Japan or walking among the locks in Scotland. Everything is nature. And um, we can try and accept that more. What is the greatest lesson nature has taught you? That the most valuable thing in existence is life. Complete this sentence. Nature brings me. Nature is trying to bring you you. Does it bring you you? Nature is trying to bring me me. You know, we often say like, I'm trying to live life, right? Or we're living life or like, hey, live your life. Right now, life is living you. Thank you. This was great. Cool. You just listened to an episode of the Our Nature podcast. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it. Thank you so much for listening. Stay curious, and I'll see you next week.